So we have a definition of the atonement. And that is the atonement is the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. All right. So our salvation, you understand, was earned by Christ. We, we don't do anything to earn our salvation. Christ earned it for us. And through f- repentance and faith, he gives that to us. That's what we're going to be learning about. Now, Christ's entire work that he did to earn our salvation is generally divided into two separate stages, okay? And these are successive stages. He started with one, and then he stepped into the other. The first stage is called the humiliation of Christ, okay? This, this is, uh, you see this in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Watch this progression, okay? Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Right, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being, bound and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Do you see that progression there? Equal with God, death on a horrible cross. Death by crucifixion was was one of the worst ways that you could die, right? I mean, the people just knew how horrible it was. That's why he says, that it, look, he didn't just humble himself to death, like maybe death by natural causes, whatever. No, even the death on a cross, God of the universe. This is the humbling of Christ. And put another way, this is the humiliation of Christ. God made low, okay? And then the... the, the uh, but so that's his humiliation, right? But then Paul keeps on talking, and this is where we see his exaltation. Therefore, because of what he did, because he made himself low, God has highly exalted him. And he has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Christ's exaltation. Okay, so these are the two stages. You see, he humbled himself. This is the humiliation. And then he was exalted. That's the exaltation of Christ. Now, the humiliation of Christ uh, generally consists of his incarnation, right? Which we talked about that last week. So within that stage of humiliation is his incarnation. That's part of the atonement that he wrought for us. Um, in his life, perfect life lived. We're going to talk about that here in a second. And the death that he died. All right, that's all part of his humiliation. And then his exaltation is seen in his resurrection from the dead, right? God raising him up. His ascension into heaven, uh, which we're going to talk, both of those we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about next week. Um, and then his second coming where he will be seen to be the glorious king that he truly is. The world doesn't see it right now, but they will one day. And that's the last week. That's the last week of class. We're going to talk about the second coming of Christ. So we're mainly going to concentrate and camp out this week on the humiliation of Christ. Okay, and that this this part of the atonement that that Jesus wrought out for us is generally seen from two different perspectives. Okay, Um, his active obedience. Right. And this his active obedience is Christ's obedience to fulfill the law on our behalf. Okay, this is the things that Christ did. Um, and it's the other half, the other perspective of what Christ did is called his passive obedience. This is Christ's suffering for us on our behalf. Okay? Now, passive, his passive obedience. What you don't need to understand that as is that Christ played no part in it. That he was just passive in it. That it just happened to him. Because that is not the case. Passive comes from a Latin word that means suffering. 
right? And, and from that Latin word, we also get our word passion, right? So we, we've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. That's, that is, the passion means suffering. That's what that means. This is the suffering of, of Christ. So his passive obedience is the suffering that he experienced on our behalf. Now, the, the, the reason that we generally divide what Christ did into his active obedience and his passive obedience is because we understand that, that there are two parts um, to God's law, right? We understand that there are, there are demands that are placed upon us, the thou shouts. You should do this. You should carry out these things. You should be this way. Um, but there are also prohibitions placed against us. Don't do these things, right? Thou shalt not. Um, and so, that's why we divide Christ's atonement into those two different areas is because we see not only did Christ not do the things that he wasn't supposed to do, but he also did everything that he was supposed to do. And he gave us that, right? And, the, and these, these two different perspectives of what Christ did, they're, all, they're not two different stages, okay? And I said his, his humiliation and his exaltation were two different stages. His passive obedience and his active obedience, they're not two separate things. It's not like he stopped being actively obedient and started becoming passively obedient. This, this is two perspectives of everything that he did in his lifetime, right? He perfectly fulfilled the law of God, and he never committed a sin, not one time, here in righteousness. Now, the first thing that we're going to talk about, his active obedience, all right? So we understand that the law requires that we not only be guilt-free, right, but also that we be inherently righteous, okay? This righteousness is something that we have to earn, right? If you remember, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, right, he said, okay, look, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die, right? But if you don't do that, and instead you do this, you eat of the tree of life, you will live forever. There were conditions placed upon man's salvation, right? Don't do this. You must do this. But we failed, right? So the thing is, is that if, if Christ would have only come to die for us, right? The wages of sin is death. If Christ would have only come to die for us and that's it, then all that would have done is that would have taken away our debt, right? But we would have just been morally neutral before God. Nothing to commend, you know, nothing to um, reward, right? Nothing to condemn either and nothing to punish, but we would just been morally neutral, right? Instead, our debt has to be paid and then we have to be positively we have to have a positive standing before God. Um, that way he has something to bless. He has something to reward. We are worthy of the blessing that he is going to give to us. So this is exactly why Christ had to fulfill the law for us. Um, he had to live a perfect life of obedience to God in order to earn that righteousness for us. And he had to obey the law for his whole life on our behalf so that that righteous fulfillment could be fulfilled in us. And this is exactly what Paul um, talks about. Whoops. That's not right. All right, this is exactly what Paul talks about um, here in Philippians 3.9. Paul says, look, I want to be found in him. Technology. Okay. Guys, just bear with me, okay? Please. I'm sorry about that. He says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. 
that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. He knows that he doesn't have any righteousness of his own, but he knows that that righteousness comes only from Christ. We don't need to be made morally neutral before God, having only our sins forgiven, but instead we need to possess a righteousness that gives us a positive standing before God, which is, which is a perfect life lived. We need to have that. Christ gives us this positive standing before God. And, and if you remember Jesus' baptism, right? He goes up to John the Baptist and he says, John, you need to baptize me. And John says, whoa, 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 hold on. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal. It's you who should be baptizing me. But what does Jesus say in return? He says, says, John, let it be so, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, That's what Jesus was doing when he was being baptized. He was fulfilling all righteousness. Now, was he fulfilling it for his sake? No. He was perfect. He had no reason to earn any kind of positive standing before God. He had never committed a sin. He had only been obedient. So he was fulfilling righteousness on our behalf. Romans 8, 3-4 says that for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man as an offering for sin. He thus condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to this. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Right? He did it so that the law could be fulfilled in us. This is his act of obedience. This is him earning righteousness that he can give to us. The very same thing is seen in Romans 5.19. And we've, we've looked at this verse many, many times. It says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So that's Adam's sin, right? So also by one man's obedience, him doing every single thing that God required of him, many will be made righteous. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, I, I love this verse. It says, and because of him, so because of God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Christ became your righteousness. He became my righteousness. He became our righteousness. Now, the implications of this are numerous. There's many of them, and, we, and we've talked about pretty much all of them already. He had to fulfill all righteousness for our sake. Unless he had done this for us, we would have no record of obedience, perfect obedience, that would merit God's favor and would merit us entrance into his family, into his kingdom. Um, because God's law um, stated that those who fulfilled the law would receive blessing, right? And so now that, that Christ has done that and he has given us that righteousness, we can receive blessing. Now, a lot of people only concentrate on Jesus coming and dying, and that's the only thing that they think about. But now do you see exactly why we have to understand and why it's crucial to, to, to know that Christ not only just paid the penalty for your sins, but he also gives you a righteousness that makes God look upon you with favor, No longer does he look upon you angry because of your sin. No longer does he look upon you with wrath. And and if Christ would have only paid for your sins, he would have looked at you indifferently. Ah, well, he's not bad, but he hasn't done anything good either. He's just morally neutral. And there's nothing that I should reward here. There's nothing that I should punish, but I don't really care. But no, Christ gives you the merit of a perfect life lived before God. And now God looks upon you with favor. So... In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And I'll make my notes available to you guys. Um, again, I apologize, but so you can have all this. This is an amazing verse. Listen to this. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. 
For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. And listen, here's, here's him, he's explaining what he means by this. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, through Christ, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. What he's saying is that if you are in Christ, all of the, all of the blessings that God promised in the Old Testament, he looks at Christ and he says, yes, yes, you receive this blessing. You receive this, you receive this, Jesus, because you've done everything that I've asked for you. And so now for us, being united with him, we receive those same blessings. And it is through, have you ever wondered why we say in Jesus' name, amen, every single prayer? Amen, you know what amen means? Amen means may it be so, right? And so if we say in Jesus' name, may it be so, it will be a yes. Because all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And if you are in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in you. You receive every single bit of favor that God has. Now that's Christ's active obedience. Okay, that is him fulfilling the law on our behalf. But now also, what was the other perspective that we talked about? His passive obedience, right? This is this, the suffering that he experienced, the death that he died. Now, I, I want to reemphasize again the, the unified nature of Christ's obedience, okay? Christ didn't merely just achieve his active obedience, you know, from birth until the cross and then step out of that form of obedience and step into passive obedience. No, this is something, his passive obedience as well is something that he experienced um, his whole life. He suffered for his whole life. Now, there's, there's an idea. This, isn't, this is not taught from the Bible, Okay, so I'm, I'm stepping away from the Bible. And I'm like, you know, this is an idea. This is a theory that some people have. The idea is that Jesus probably grew up without an earthly father. The idea is that G- Joseph may have possibly died when Jesus was young. So what you have is, is Jesus is 12 years old, right? And he's in the temple and Joseph is there. Joseph and Mary are both there. So he's 12, his dad's there. The, then the, the next instance that we have recorded in scripture of anything in the life of Jesus is the wedding at Cana and Joseph is not there. It is only his mother. Never again is Joseph ever mentioned in the scriptures. So the idea is sometime in between there, probably when Jesus was young, Joseph probably died, right? So that means that Jesus, anywhere from being 12 years old to 30 years old, he had to be the breadwinner. He was the man of the house, right? And and for anybody who has ever gone through anything like that, you know that that's not easy. That is hard. Um, Remember his temptation, in the wilderness. Okay. He was so wearied and so dis- just destroyed by what he went through that angels had to come and minister to him. Okay. He, and he knew suffering in the intense opposition that he faced from all those around him. Hebrews 12 verses three through four says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you will not grow weary or faint hearted for in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but he did. That's the implication of that. He did. He resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood, faced opposition from everybody around him. He wept at the death of Lazarus and he experienced grief at Jerusalem's rejection of him. But All of this was to be expected, right? Because Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. All right. So I I want to, I want to 
set the stage right now, right? Jesus, he suffered for his whole entire life. And his pa- the passive obedience, the suffering from the results of sin that Jesus faced, it wasn't just done at the cross. This was something that he experienced his entire life for us. But now, the suffering of Jesus certainly did intensify as he approached the cross. Jesus knew what was coming. And the closer that it got, the more it weighed on his soul. And you remember in uh, Matthew 26, he says, My soul is sorrowful, even unto death. What Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, Look, if this gets any worse, I feel like I'm going to die. That was the sorrow that weighed upon the heart of our Savior. He knew what was coming. So the pain of the cross um, is part of his passive obedience, the suffering that he experienced for us on our behalf and there, there are four aspects of this pain that he experienced on the cross. There are four different kinds of pain that Christ suffered. The first one, obviously, physical death and pain. Okay? And what we will see here in a minute is that this is the least of Christ's worries. But he certainly experienced physical pain and death. In, in the book of Mark, I like the book of Mark because Mark was a very simple man. And he wrote very simply, right? He was probably the least educated of them all. And it it is very common language. It's very dumbed down. And so when I like to read Mark because it's so simple to understand, right? So it's interesting. If you read the account of the crucifixion in Mark, when you get to Mark 15, all that Mark says, the only thing that he says regarding the crucifixion of Jesus is, and they crucified him. In Mark 15, verse 24, it just says, and they crucified him. That's all Mark devoted to the issue. The reason being is because, remember we talked about earlier, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on a cross. That was so horrible. The the people at that time knew what it was. There was no need to paint this vivid imagery of what happened to Christ. This This was regarded as a horror amongst everybody. And that's all that Jesus said. I mean, that's all that Mark said, and they crucified him. So listen to this. A criminal who was crucified, he was essentially forced to suffocate himself. Okay. That, that was usually the cause of death. His arms were outstretched and fastened by nails to the cross. And he had to support most of the weight of of his body with his arms. His chest cavity would be pulled upward and outward, making it difficult to exhale in order to be able to draw fresh breath. But when his longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push himself up with the nails in his feet, pull himself up with the nails in his wrists in order to take a breath. By pushing himself upward in that way, um, he could fend off suffocation. But remember in the case of Jesus, he was just flogged repeatedly before that, his back torn to shreds. So every time he pulls himself up, scraping across the cross. And a physician writing in the journal of the American Medical Association in 1986. Okay, he explained the pain that would have been experienced in death by crucifixion. He said, adequate exhalation, breathing, required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows. However, this maneuver would place the entire weight of the body on the tarsals and would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexion of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists about the iron nails and cause fiery 
pain along the damaged median nerves, muscle cramps, and paresthesia. This is the pins and needles that you feel from lack of circulation or nerve damage. And paresthesia of the outstretched and uplifted arms would add to the discomfort. And as a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia, to suffocation. He would wear himself out so much that he would just choose to sit there and suffocate and die. That is the death that is inflicted on a man when he is crucified. And that is what our Lord experienced. But as I said, that physical pain and suffering was the least of Christ's worries. The next aspect of pain that he experienced was the pain of bearing sin, bearing our sin. So much more awful than the pain of physical suffering that he endured was the psychological pain of bearing the guilt for our sin. Now, we know in our own experience, whenever we sin, we feel that sense of guilt, right? We know that we've done something wrong, Um, but we're sinners by nature. So there's a part of us that that will always be kind of numb to that, that that won't really feel the full effect. There is a part of us, no matter how holy or sanctified we become in this life, that will always like that just a little bit, right? Not so the case with Christ. He was completely holy, completely perfect. And so whenever our sins were laid upon him, um, you can imagine how his, his soul rebelled against that. Scripture frequently says that our sins were put upon Christ. Everything that he hated most deeply was laid upon him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. And he bore the sins of many. Isaiah 53, 12. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul declares that God made Christ to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And that Christ became a curse for us. Galatians 3, 13. The author of Hebrews says that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 9, 28. And Peter says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. First Peter 2:24. Now, think back again to 2 Corinthians 5:21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Right? It does not say that he made him who knew no sin to be a sinner. Okay? So it's one thing for Christ to be on the cross and for God to look at him and see an adulterer. It's one thing for Christ to be on the cross and to look at his son and to see a thief. Right? But that, that's not what this says. It says that he made him to be sin. God the Father looks upon his son, and he doesn't see an adulterer. He sees adultery. He looked upon his son, and he doesn't see a thief. He sees theft, thievery. He doesn't look upon his son and see sins that were committed. He sees sin in and of itself. Jesus Christ bore the weight of our sins by becoming sin. Everything that is in us that is evil, Christ became. and He bore that. So he felt the pain of, of physical pain and death. He felt the pain of bearing our sin, right? He felt the pain of abandonment. Jesus asked his disciples, right, to stand watch. 
And yet, as soon as Jesus was arrested in Matthew 26, 56, we read that all of the disciples forsook him and fled. Right? But if you remember, this isn't something new to Jesus. Remember, we looked last week, he went to his hometown and his family were there and none of them believed him. They, 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 they tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to kill him. Those that he loved most rejected him. He only had the disciples, right? The Pharisees constantly attacking him. Um, crowds of people would come. He would say something, they would leave. But he had the 12, right? They were always there. Jesus asked him after a crowd had left, they said, are you, he said, are you going to go too? And they said, where else are we going to go? They had made commitments to Christ. Yet in the hour when they needed him most, they forsook him and they fled. Jesus Christ carries, he, he goes through an unfair trial. People mocking him, booing him. They traded him for a murderer in his place. He carries his cross up to, the, up to Calvary, right? And he is hanging there naked before the world, bleeding, torn to bits, bearing the sin of the world. And in a moment, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that instance, fellowship with the father was severed and he, and he turned his face away from the son. In that moment, Jesus Christ was utterly alone. He had nobody. Nobody was on his side. Not his disciples, not his family, not his friends, not even the father. Just as our iniquities have caused a separation between us and God. Remember that verse, Isaiah 59. So also when our sins and our iniquities were placed upon him, that same separation was felt between Christ and the Father. He was utterly alone. He felt the pain of complete abandonment. Yet more difficult than all three of those aspects of Jesus' pain. More, more heinous and more just incomprehensible for us. Remember I told you that the cross was the least of Jesus Christ's worries. The, the, the pain of bearing sin the least of his worries, the abandonment that he felt, the, the least of his worries. What was even greater than all of this to a degree that we cannot understand is that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he bore the wrath of God upon himself. Romans 3.25 tells us that God put forward Christ as a propitiation. Okay, and I know it's a big word, it's a fancy word, but what that word means by definition, what that word means is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us to favor. Okay, that's what it, that's what that, all of that is wrapped in that one word. Christ became a propitiation for us. He fully absorbed the wrath of God and so now God can look at us with favor rather than anger. That's what it means when it says that he is a propitiation. And Paul tells us that this was to show God's righteousness. God poured out his wrath upon Jesus to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So in the Old Testament, right, you have, you have people that are committing sins, right? And we know that the wages of sin is death, but they don't die, right? They don't die the second that they sin. God, in his divine forbearance, he passed over it. So he implements this sacrificial system, right? He says, hey, you get the most perfect, spotless, without blemish lamb that you have, and you bring it before the altar, and you kill it for your sake, to cover your sins, right? But 
Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for the, for the blood of these sacrifices to take away sins. It never worked. Just as there was never a perfect person, there was never a perfect spotless lamb. There never was. It was in vain what they were doing. But God was trying to show them, hey, you can't do this yourself. You can't do this yourself. Every year they had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Now, if those sacrifices could take away sin, why did they have to keep offering them again? This is the argument that the author of Hebrews makes because he says it is impossible for that to happen. So what God is actually doing in the Old Testament is he is not forgiving their sins because of sacrifices that they're making. He is looking over them. He is looking over. He is passing them over. He is forbearing. He is long suffering. He is storing up his wrath. He is storing up his anger. And in a moment when Jesus Christ is on the cross, he looks upon his son and the, all of the hatred and the intense just wrath that God feels towards sin, his son becomes that. And he pours out his wrath from centuries and centuries and millennia that has been stored up. And for centuries and centuries and millennia after that, he brings it all together and he pours it upon his son, Jesus. There are several other scriptures that speak of Jesus being a propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 2.17 says that, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2 says he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the wrath bearer. Right? He is the wrath drinker for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. First John chapter four, verse ten says, In this is love. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's something that you need to take away from this. This is love. This is love what God did to his son. It says in Isaiah 53, it says, it pleased the Lord to crush his son. Because God knew that what was going to come of this. God knew that he was ransoming for himself a people, right? Bringing them close to him. The son did this out of complete, perfect, willing obedience to his father, out of love for his father. God was pleased to do what he did because he knew that it meant our salvation. This is love, as heinous and as cruel as it seems. This is love. So there are, oh yeah, so <laughs> amazingly, amazingly, you can, just, you can just feel his relief. He knew his, Jesus knew his suffering was nearing completion. He knew that he had consciously borne all of the wrath of the Father against our sins. Um, his God's anger had abated and subsided. The awful heaviness of sin was being removed from him. He knew that all that remained was to yield his spirit to the hands of his father and die. So Jesus says, it is finished. It is done. He drank it all. And into the same hands that crushed him, he gives his spirit. He says, Father, I'm entrusting myself to you. Take me, please. Only a sense of complete absolution of sin can cause that kind of reaction for the hand that crushes you that pours out its wrath upon you when it is removed jesus says into your hands i commend my spirit it, it was finished 
it was done. No more was there going to be any more wrath. No more was there going to be any more pain. Jesus drank all of it completely. As Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah 53, 12, Jesus poured out his soul unto death and he bore the sin of many and God the Father saw the fruit of the travail of his soul and he was satisfied. God was pleased in what Christ had done. Now, that is his passive obedience. Okay, That is the suffering that he endured on our behalf for us. This is, part, this is the atonement. This is Christ making atonement for our sins. Now, the atoning work of Christ, as I've said, it, it is a very complex event. It's got, it's got several effects on us, okay? Um, and we've really, we've only scratched the surface <laughs> with, with everything that Christ has done. I've tried to hit on the most important things, but we've only scratched the surface. Um, but just to get just a, a, just a clearer picture of what was actually done to us, okay, the effect that all of this has on us, let's look at, there, the scripture says that there are really, there's many, many problems, but I've chosen four, okay? There are four problems that we have because of our sin, right? We deserve to die as the penalty for sin, right? Romans 6.23 makes this clear, for the wages of sin is death. And in the Old Testament, you have a passage, Ezekiel 18.20, it says, the soul that sins shall die. Right? We deserve to die because of our sin. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. We deserve to have borne that. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is upon you. And if you remember, before we come to Christ, we are children of wrath, right? because that is what we deserve. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. We are separated from God by our sins. A verse that we've looked at many times, Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We're in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. In regards to sin, Jesus says in John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Every single one of us. And and in regards to being enslaved to Satan, 2 Timothy 2, verse 25 through 26 says, Paul tells Timothy, he says, opponents must be corrected with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Isn't that a fascinating verse? Satan, you know, roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? And he captures men and he makes them do their will. That's all of us. We are in bondage to Satan. All right, so there are four words that the scriptures use to describe exactly how Jesus Christ has remedied each single, each one of these uh, problems for us. So we deserve to die the penalty for sin, right? We deserve that. Now the word that the Bible uses to describe what Christ did so to remedy this problem for us is sacrifice. Jesus Christ was our sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice in our place. We were supposed to die, but we don't. He did, right? Hebrews nine twenty six. Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in Hebrews 10.10, And by God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ putting himself as a sacrifice means that we don't have to die. 
We get to live forever. We inherit eternal life. That begins the moment that you accept Christ. Because the sacrifice that he made is accepted by God on your behalf. Yes, your body will pass away, but your soul will live forever. It will not die. Jesus is our sacrifice. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Remember, that was the second problem. And the word that, that the Bible uses is one that we've already talked about so much, propitiation. All right, First John 14, remember, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. We deserve to bear the wrath of God for our sin, but we don't. Jesus Christ bore that for us instead. He was our propitiation. We are separated from God by our sins. Isaiah 59, 2. And the word that the scriptures use to indicate how Christ has remedied this problem for us is reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This is something that Christ accomplished for us, right? God is in the heavens and we are here on earth and we are wicked and evil sinners. God has appeared and his wrath is inflamed towards us, right? There's a separation. God cannot, his, his eyes are too pure to behold sin, Habakkuk says. We are separated from him, but Christ steps in that gap, right? He stands before God. And he bears the full wrath that is directed towards us. He swallows it up whole. And now he creates a way for us to go to the Father. He reconciles us. He, inter- he intercedes for us before the throne of God saying, I have absolved of all of his sin. Father, have mercy upon him. Give him grace. Christ has reconciled us to God. We are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. That is the state that we are in because of our sin. We are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. Now, because we are in bondage to sin and to Satan, what we need is someone to provide redemption for us, right? And and that, that is the word that the Bible uses to describe how he has won us. He has redeemed us. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ paid the price so that we could be set free from bondage to sin and bondage to Satan. Um, Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So he destroys Satan because Satan has the power of death, right? That's what he says. And deliver all of those who through fear of death, which is the power that Satan has, were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ has redeemed us from the fear of death. And by redeeming us from the fear of death, he's redeemed us from the bondage of Satan. And in, in the most clear way that it could be said in Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has redeemed us from the dominion of Satan. He no longer has any authority over you, over us. And in regards to sin, Romans chapter 6, verses 11 and 14. In, in a long discussion, Paul says that the death that Christ died, he died to sin, Right? He died because of sin. And the life that Christ now lives, he lives unto God. 
And he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. He has redeemed you from the bondage to sin. Christ has done everything that we need to have life. It is complex. There, 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 there's so much more to this than what I've even touched. Okay. Um, and, and I will send you guys a resource tomorrow that will show you exactly why his resurrection from the dead is so important for us and his ascension is so important for us. Um, we'll talk more about those in depth later, um, but just know that there's so much that we haven't covered. Okay, if you're, if you're overwhelmed as I am thinking about just this that Christ has done for us, just know that there is so much more. You cannot exhaust everything that Christ has done for us to save us. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That's why we sing that song, because he paid it all.